Welcome to the Flint Catholic Podcast. My name is Father Tony Smila. And I'm Michael Hasso. Today we're embarking on number two of the hashtag BYOB, Bring Your Own Bible, Bishop's Year of the Bible. Uh, today we're looking at the Book of Ruth. The Book of Ruth. And so the genre of this is a short story, and uh, it's, it is really short. Uh, only four chapters long, just a couple of pages. You can read it in a very short sitting. Yeah, I love books like this yeah, because I just feel I feel great about myself after, you know, it's like I just finished a whole book of the Bible in like an hour. <laughs> I mean, even less than that. I mean, yeah, probably less than say, that. You probably do yeah. it in like 20 minutes. Yeah, I'm a slow reader, so it might take me an hour, but probably for most of you, 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty short, four chapters long, and uh, and a lot takes place in that in that four chapters though and that's what we're going to hope to to talk about today uh what really goes on in those four chapters and why really the book of ruth is super important to uh old testament history as well so ruth follows the book of judges and takes place during that time during the time of the judges the first line of the book is once back in the time of the judges so that uh puts the book after the exodus after the conquest of the promised land but before the time of the kings and as we'll see later, uh, that's a really important piece, too. In fact, this is three generations before King David. She is David's great-grandmother. So really cool, um, really important as well. So we see that this uh, taking place about a 1,000 years um, before. So David, his kingdom is about a 1,000 years B.C. So the, the setting of the story is probably earlier than that, three generations before 1,000 B.C., However, this was written much later. Uh, this audience is to the people of Israel in a post-exilic period. So this means it's after the Babylonian captivity of 586. So this likely places uh, an early dating of the book closer to uh, 1000 BC to the strong pro-Davidic nature of the text, um, strong awareness of David's ancestry. There's um, The setting would be 1,000 years before Christ, but really the, the writing of the book is probably 500 years after that, but they still know um, a lot about David's ancestry, and um, this must have been very common knowledge at the time as well. We see this in a lot of different places. We see this even in the um, the genealogy of Matthew. Uh, he yeah. includes he includes Ruth in in that. Yeah, and it's very similar to like I guess uh, a modern American equivalent would be like knowing some of the stories of like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. It's it's just like common knowledge. Like there's right. books written about them, but there's sort of a reason why books are, are written about them. So Ruth is, is sort of an equivalent. It's a really interesting background to David. Yep. So, and then, so according to Jewish tradition, the book of Ruth is actually read at Pentecost. And that's not the Christian feast of Pentecost, right. just so you know. Um, it's actually the Jewish feast of Pentecost, which is where... Uh, Israel received the Torah, received the law. Mm -hmm. um, and in Jewish Bibles, Ruth is situated between Proverbs and the Song of Solomon, which I found very interesting. I had never realized this. I don't know if you were aware of this, Father. But um, so as such, in Jewish tradition, it's uh, Ruth is often associated with the woman of noble character from Proverbs 31 and the bride of so of of king of the song of solomon interesting no i didn't know that at all that's really fascinating and um i actually want to pop up real quick to that previous point read at pentecost so pentecost being the the giving of the torah the giving of the law right and there certainly is a strong connection between the jewish torah, uh, pentecost and the christian pentecost right so in in the jewish pentecost we see the giving of the law the giving of the torah um as really important for them but in the Christian Pentecost, we see the giving of the Holy Spirit, the fulfillment of the law. Uh, and so I, I just love that, the connection between uh, the Jewish feast and the, and the Christian feast, showing that you know Christianity wasn't something new. Christianity is a fulfillment uh, of what the Jews have been given uh, by God. So I love that connection right there as well. Yeah, and interestingly with that, it's like when, when Peter started preaching at Pentecost, there, it says there were all these people from all these different nations from throughout the known world at that time. Yep. And that was when they were welcomed into the church. That's right. So that's so interesting that, you know, the book of Ruth was read at, you know, the Jewish Pentecost, Feast of Pentecost. Yep. And then at the Christian 
Feast of Pentecost, like the original one, all of these Gentiles were welcomed in. That's right. And it's important that there was a lot of Gentiles there because Ruth herself was not Jewish. She was a Moabite, one of the enemies of Israel. Yeah. And so we can trace her the origin of the Moabites back to the origin of the son of Lot, mm-hmm. meaning that it was highly unlikely that the story of Ruth was just invented. Right. Um, this is according to the Catholic introduction to the Old Testament. They say, quote, far more plausible is the conclusion that David's descent from Ruth and Ruth's Moabite ancestry are well-known facts, which both which the author both explains and defends by means of this touching story of human virtue and divine providence. Right. So we're not speaking about like something that's legend, uh, some something that's folktale. We're not talking about a folktale, but something that that is uh, a well-known fact Correct. that actually happened. Yeah, which I think is very interesting because at least when I first read the book of Ruth, I think it's very easy for it to come off that way. Yes. Kind of like Tobit, which is, you know, we'll talk about that later, but that isn't like a historical, you know, and, you know, in the modern sense of history. And so, so yeah, Ruth actually is a historical well-known story that was written down and became a part of scripture. Yep. Yep. And there's even more evidence to that too, right? Uh, It's in the King David. Yeah. So, I, this was so awesome. So David actually sends his family to Moab for safety when they're when he's pursued by Saul. That is super cool. So showing that there are those connections already between David and the Moabites, traditionally one of the enemies of yeah. Israel. Yeah, and it's I think it's just really awesome to see the I guess the humanity of David and of yeah. and of these um, you know, ancient Jews in that you know, where would he send his family to safety? To his grandparents' house, basically. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yep. That's that's just so cool. So one thing that so with that in mind, the story of Ruth provides an early sign of the expansion of the people of God to include all nations, right? So you see these little hints throughout the entire Old Testament that um the Jews are the chosen people of God, but eventually God wants to open the doors to everyone, Jews and Gentiles. And here's just another small example of that, that anyone who draws near to the church can become a member. We also see the workings of divine providence here. So God really isn't credited directly for the unfolding of events here, but like there can be no doubt that these seeming coincidences are really God's action uh, at work here. You know, the fact that Ruth is David's great-grandmother is not mere coincidence. It's not just a, a, a trivia fact to know, but there's, there's deep meaning behind that. God did that on purpose, and he meant for that to happen. Um, so let's just quickly, like, walk through uh, the four chapters of the book of Ruth. I think that's going to be helpful here. So we start with um, not Ruth, but Elimelech. Elimelech. I um, love that name. I know. It's a cool name in... Uh, so Elimelech's family goes to Moab. Um, there's a famine, right? And how often does this happen, right? Out of necessity, people have to up and leave. That's that's why um, Israel and the Hebrews ended up in Egypt the first time, because of famine. So they go to Moab because of a famine. And then Elimelech dies. So Elimelech's sons, they take Moabite wives while they're there in, in Moab. And Ruth was one of them. So uh, and then eventually both sons die and only the women are left, which, you know, really shows that uh, the women did live a lot longer than, than the men. Uh, and we see that here as well, that Elimelech and both of his sons die, and Elimelech's wife and both of the wives are all still alive. So Ruth is left with a choice at this point. Because she's Moabite, um, she can stay with Naomi, who is the wife of Elimelech, um, or she can return to the Moabites. And this choice is, is more than just where is she going to live. There's a deeper choice at work here. Um, she chooses to stay with Naomi, but not only is she choosing just to stay with Naomi, but she's choosing to live as an Israelite. She's choosing to take on the, the, the life of an Israelite, to take on the faith of an Israelite. And so that's really what chapter one is about, uh, that choice that she has to stay with Naomi. Now, Naomi 
encourages her, no, go, go to be with your people, the Moabites. Um, do you really understand what you're taking on? If you stay with me, do you really know what, what you mean with that? And, and Ruth makes it clear, yes, I, I understand uh, what I'm doing when, I, when I'm staying with you. And so she does. So they go back, and in chapter 2, Ruth meets Boaz. Now, when they, when they come back to uh, Israel, right, they have no husbands, they're widows. Uh, so what they end up doing is they glean the field after the reapers had come through. They, they need food, and so they glean the field. And, and I like this part, too, because it shows that, at least here in this part of Israel, they're following the law that God had set for them. There was an Israelite law that the harvesters were forbidden to go back over the fields to pick up any grain that had been dropped or missed. This grain was for the poor. It was for the foreigner. And uh, and so they're, they're taking advantage of this. They're going through. They're gleaning the fields after the, the harvesters and reapers had come through. But then Boaz sees her, and and he says, you know what? I don't want you to live in this in this poverty. Uh, so he begins to start taking care of her. Now in chapter 3, um, and this is really where you get a lot of the deep theological work here, um, Naomi initially suggested that Ruth approach Boaz as a potential goel, G-O-E-L, uh, goel. Now that is a term that is used throughout the whole Old Testament. And here it's being used to signify a family redeemer family redeemer. Now, this term is important because this is what God calls himself in relation to us over and over again, the family redeemer. Yeah. yeah. And so there's this really great homily that um, St. Isidore of Seville, where he talks about this idea of Goel. And what he says is that St. John the Baptist is actually representative of the first kinsman of sorry, of Ruth, yeah, and how he has the first right, yep. right? And so similarly, John the Baptist, he, he is asked, are you the Messiah? And knowing that he's not the true bridegroom, he actually, he says no. And so he gives up that right to Christ, who's the true bride. That's right. And so we see in the story that, that uh, they're looking at each other, or they're, they're trying to figure out, okay, um, Naimo suggested Ruth that they approach Boaz as a potential Goel, but he actually didn't have that that first right right away. There was another person who has a closer relation um, than Boaz, and so they had to approach that person and say, uh, will you take Ruth as your wife? And that person had to say no. And so then that leaves the, the door open for Boaz to, to then uh, take that place. Uh, and so we see that connection between John the Baptist and Christ as well. The first person says, no, I'm not the... I'm not the Christ. John the Baptist says, I'm not the Christ, but he is. As we see this, this other person in Boaz doing the same thing and a little foreshadowing uh, to what's going to happen. Now, I've used the term Goel a few times, and, and there's um, a few different definitions, a few different ways that term applies. And um, in Jewish law, um, there's a, a lot of different ways to become a Goel. So if a for instance, if someone out of poverty has been obliged to sell himself to a wealthy stranger or sojourner, it became the duty of his relatives to redeem him, to pay back that debt, and to free the person. And so you become a goel, a redeemer, when you do that. Uh, the same duty fell upon the nearest kinsman if his brother, being poor, had been forced to sell some of his, of his property. Now we see this in the, in the Jubilee Laws, right? Um, God has given uh, these people um, this land— and every 10 years, the land had, what, no matter what type of selling and buying occurred, the land had to go back to the original owners every time. And so uh, the family would have to buy the property back to, um, uh, uh, to, to redeem what was lost. Now, here, where it um, relates to us, it was also... Um, uh, the duty upon the nearest relative to marry the childless widow of his brother. Now, that's something we certainly have a very little conception of nowadays, right? That's kind of weird, right? So if somebody dies, um, with if, if a, a man dies um, and leaves a widow without a child, it was the nearest relative was to take up that duty and marry um, the woman and produce children. Yeah, it was kind of like today not having a retirement plan essentially that's, yeah that's a good way to put it because you know if you think about it from an ancient perspective 
who was to provide for Correct. the women of the family that didn't work? It was the children, ultimately, right. once the once the father and husband died. Correct. You know, and so they needed children. And so this was a duty that we even see, you know, the Jews bring to Jesus in the Gospels where yep. they say, you know, um, I believe this was the Sadducees who brought it to Jesus and said, you know, uh, a woman is married to the first brother and then he dies That's without bearing children. And then, you know, the seven, all seven, the seven brothers. brothers. Yep. Yep. And we also see on the cross why Jesus gives his mother to John um, for that same reason. Um, not to produce children, but to take care of her, to make sure that she is taken care of, um, to give her somebody because her only child is now dying. Jesus is dying. He can't take care of her anymore. So he gives her to John. He says, John, take care of her. So this is where we're going to see this happening here. Uh, here, But there's also um, another way in which a goel can uh can happen it's the uh the blood revenge so the law of the blood revenge made it the sacred duty of the nearest relative to avenge the blood of his kinsmen this was called the goel hadam the avenger of blood now this law was uh based upon the command given in genesis 9 chapter 5 or chapter 9 verse 5 whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood by man shall his blood be shed now we obviously don't don't follow that anymore, right? Um, that's one of the laws that has been fulfilled in Jesus, um, and so we can we can see that and say, "Wow, that's really barbaric." And that's um, why would God give that command, right? But we have to remember to not judge a culture by our current standards. Throughout history, we've had to grow and develop an understanding of what God wants for us, and so this itself was a um was was a growth in what had been done because i imagine before that you kill somebody's brother and they're going to kill like half your family in response yeah. yeah i think it's easy for us to lose sight of that that this was actually a limitation yes on the i guess you'd say wrath of man the revenge okay. yeah. yeah the amount of revenge you it was it was a limitation of that yeah it, i mean this was almost like if you think of ancient tribal culture this would be almost like the golden rule yep Yep. That would be their equivalent, really. Well, and, and you still you still see this nowadays, where um, we still act this way. You know, we see gangs. Uh, you kill one of their members, they're going to kill three of your members. Um, and so, you know, to think that we, you know, this is something that we never. Why would we need this? We need this. We need these limitations. We need God to to teach us that, you know, that's that's not how we were made to be. So, so we see all of those different versions of the goel. And of course, God calls himself the Goel in relation to us, the redeemer of blood. He himself was the one, though, who was sacrificed, killed on the cross for us. And so Jesus then becomes our Goel, the redeemer from slavery, um, a slavery of our own doing. And so in chapter four, we see uh, after all the, the negotiations and the working through, we see that Boaz takes Ruth as his wife and she becomes the great grandmother of David. And so um, quite a few uh, spiritual things we can take from this, but um, I think you had something from St. John Chrysostom's homily that I think we can end on today. Yeah, so this this comes from St. John Chrysostom, who is um, one of the early bishops of the church. And this is a homily from the fifth century where he talks about the book of Ruth. And he says, see, for instance, what befell Ruth how like it is to the things which belong to us. For she was both a of a strange race and reduced to the utmost poverty. Yet Boaz, when he saw her, neither despised her poverty nor abhorred her mean birth. As Christ, having received the church, being both an alien and in much poverty, took her to be partaker of the great blessings. But even as Ruth if she had not before left her father and renounced household and race, country and kindred would not have attained unto this alliance. So the church too, having forsaken the customs which men had received from their fathers, then and not before, became lovely to the bridegroom. And so I really like this quote a lot. Just not only the connection to Christ's closeness to the poor, 
which, you know, I mean, we can frankly see it throughout the Gospels, but, right. you know, when we look at the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, um, and on and on, and it really sort of highlights Ruth not only as matriarch of the Gentiles, but in a sense like a matriarch of the poor, yeah. even. Yeah, absolutely. So that will uh, do it for our uh, looking into the, the book of Ruth. Um, and do you remember what our next book is that we're going to BYOB? I do not. I don't either. We'll figure it out. Hope all your lens is going very well. Uh, keep it up. Welcome to the Flint Catholic Podcast. My name is Father Tony Smila. And I'm Michael Hasso. And today we are joined by Dr. Teresa Marshall, the principal of St. John Vianney <laughs> Catholic School. You hold a very um, uh, important place uh, in my heart as well. So I've spent a lot of time as a kid in your office. It wasn't your office at the time, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, I spent a lot of time in the principal's office because I was, I was not such a good child. <laughs> <laughs> So we're glad to have you here today. It's glad to be here. Great. So tell us about uh, how you basically got to this point. Uh, give us your testimony. Oh, okay. Well, I grew up in a family with a family of nine sisters and five brothers. So we are real Catholics. Oh, yeah. From Baltimore, Baltimore City. Um, I started out in public school, actually, until I was about second grade and then my mom decided that I was getting into too many fights along with some of my other siblings and we should try something better. At that time sisters were in charge. Religious orders were running a lot of the Catholic schools so they gave us a discount after the fourth child so we um, enjoy that. Um, I was inspired um, by the Catholic sisters that I was around. They were the school sisters in Notre Dame and they were very um, very into um, talking about having us go to adoration once a week. And I had an experience as a child of, um, I was acting out in church, playing, and the nun grabbed me me after I was coming out of church, and she said, do you know what happened when um, Jesus had to tell people who were not being good in church, he had to tell them to to leave the church? (laughs) And I was like, oh, "Oh, yeah, I remember that story. It was really good. And she goes, you need to give, you know, it's important for you to be still in church so God can talk to you, you know. And I was like, oh, okay. And there was no punishment. It was just that. And I went back into the church the next week. And um, when he was, the priest was doing a benediction, I had this experience of, I was like third grade by then. And I was like, there's something, I felt something. I didn't know what it was. And felt like Jesus was trying to talk to me. And so I was really, I didn't understand all that feeling, that warmth, that um, I just felt like this is, this is God trying to get close to me. And I want that. I want, I want that feeling again. And uh, so I started to pay attention. Then my second encounter with God came when I was a teenager. And uh, a friend of mine invited me to church. And uh, they were having some kind of charismatic prayer meeting, and I had another encounter with God loving me and making me feel, I felt like um, that feeling came back that I had when I was before the Eucharist, when I was three years, when I was in third grade. So, um, and I talked to some adults about it, and they were like, Jesus, you need to, you know, like, accept Jesus into your heart. And I know all my Protestant friends were like that, you know, being African-American, most, a lot of my friends were pro- or Protestant, and they were always talking about, you know, turn your heart to Jesus, get saved, all that stuff. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and I said, I'm saved enough, you know, whatever that means. I didn't understand it. So then basically, um, I ended up, um, at one point, there was a, they were in this prayer meeting, and people started praying in tongues, and I'd never experienced that before, you know. And I kept feeling that presence that I experienced in the Eucharist of Jesus being very, very intimate close to me and uh and not feeling like I had to earn it it was just there so I decided okay 
Jesus, if you're real, then you would have a lot of things to fix in me. So I started, at that point, I started praying every day. Um, and I started having, feeling this intimate love for God that came from him, actually, not from me. It was, I didn't have any love in my heart. He just stuck it in there. <laughs> so I was able to send it back. And I was like, wait, well, this is amazing, you know. And I know that my parents started saying to me, um, you, you need to keep going to that prayer meeting because it's good for you, you know. <laughs> and yep. and they, I think they noticed the behavioral change. Of course, I wasn't aware of them. And my siblings started saying to me, you're nicer. You're happy. Why? And, you know, started going. So anyway, so I, um, when I got in high school, the nuns were telling me about you know, what do you want to do with your life? My mom was like, I'm not going to pay for you to go to this school. In fact, that we can't afford it. So I had to take on a summer job um, and as a sophomore in high school. And I wanted up coming to working so I could pay the rest of my high school because I was at a private school again. And that's where I started thinking about what I need to do. Well, I was doing this volunteer job working one-on-one -on -one with a handicapped kid. And somebody said to me, you're really good at that working with those children we were in a group I was in working in a group home and they asked me if I wanted a job because then I by then I had turned um, 16 and I was like I don't know and I asked my mom if she thought I could work with these really sick kids and she said you should try it if you can't I'll come and get you if you get afraid but when I got in there I was felt really natural and so I because uh, what happened was one of the kids hadn't talked for a long time and then I was working with a one-on-one -on -one, you know just naming things and he started talking and then I told the social worker there I said you know he can talk and she was like he hasn't spoke in six months wow. and he's talking and I said yeah you know watch this and I started talking to him and he started talking back to me she said he had PTSD from witnessing his parents get killed there was yeah. a tornado or something and the house fell in and um so then I thought well maybe God wants me to teach <laughs> you know and it turned out I, I went to school got certified um working with mentally impaired children first and then learning disabled kids and children with autism and found out that I actually was quite good at it and um and I started to pray for my kids and miracles would happen with them and then I thought well you know, this is my niche, but then it's my vocation, you know, um, again, clear to me that I had this, another experience in front of the tabernacle of falling in love with Jesus, and I have no explanation for it. I don't know why it happened. We had a snow day. I got my teacher's job pretty quickly in Ann Arbor after my student teaching. They were like, hey, we want you here because you're really gifted working with these kids. So I was like, okay. And I thought, well, I'll pray for them every day. That's a good thing while I was in the front of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, we had a snow day that day. So I went to Mass, and then they had adoration afterwards. And I was sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and I felt like Jesus walked out of the tabernacle, and he came sat next to me, and, and he put his arm around me. And I was like, whoa. I was closing my, I had my eyes closed, and I thought, is this really happening, <laughs> you know? And then I felt like Jesus... He said, he didn't say anything for a while. And I said, well, you, you should say something because this is, <laughs> this is um, you know, different. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't usually have prayer times like this. You know, and then he said, I love you so much, you know. And um, I was like, wow. And I, and I felt it. It's like my whole being just experienced, like every cell in my being was experiencing this love from him. I didn't know what to do with it. And I was like, I felt like I was in some other place. And then um, I winded up, I was, I felt like I had been there for maybe 15 minutes, but three hours had gone by. I didn't know that. I was late for the next thing I was supposed to do. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's one of those kinds of things. So I just felt like, God, there's something profound here about us as humans and our dignity as humans that God was trying to communicate to me to impart to whoever he gave me to minister to. And at that time I experienced maybe, I had a, I'd had a previous experience in my prayer with God. Um, Jesus came to me and put this cloak around me and it turned into a wedding gown. And then I had, um, and prior to him putting it over me, I was like a beggar. And I had, had to, and he had said to me, why don't you give me your life? This is like a dream that I had before this experience in front of the Blessed Sacrament. 
And he said, well, give me your life. I came to him as a beggar and I opened my hands and it was full of horse manure and it was piled really high. And so almost I couldn't see him. I said, well, here's my life and that's what you wanted. And then he was, and I looked around, I looked beyond the manure and looked at him and was laughing because I thought, yeah, you asked for it. And it, he was really, really happy. And he was like ecstatic that I was giving him this. And I was like, something was wrong with you. <laughs> and then, I mean, I did say that in my dream. And then he reached out to touch it. And I was like, don't touch that. That's bad. That's dirty. And he was like, he touched it and it turned to diamonds. And he, and that's when he put this cloak over me. And, and that was really clear to me at that moment that he was saying that somehow I was supposed to be his. And... Again, it was one of those, like, whoa moments, like, God. So I've had some pretty significant inter, you know, interactions with the Lord. He just did it. I didn't, you know. So he was felt like it was. I had a calling on my life. So I later with my spiritual director looked into being, you know, receiving the consecration of virginity because I just felt like God wanted me to still teach what it, and I had looked into orders and stuff, very attracted to Franciscans and to the to the, um, the order of um, the Carmelites. But um, felt like God was saying, nope. He kept like saying it was something different. And then I realized I was supposed to be a consecrated virgin. Well, it's another story. But um, but then when I uh, went into teaching, there was a lot of blessing there. A lot of people got inspired to teach because they were part of my teaching experience. So I felt like. That's what God kind of wanted me to do. Um, didn't think anything about being a principal at all. Um, God, had, I got asked to be a principal and prayed and felt like God told me to do that. You know, mm -hmm. like trust and he'll make up the difference yeah. as he always does, you know. Um, so um, it started out in Ann Arbor and... Father um, Tom was my um, spiritual director for all life. I think it was most of the years he was in Ann Arbor. I think he was there for about 10 years, Father Tom Firestone. Mm -hmm. so, so he kind of had been with me in all my journeys and, you know, and after, post, post receiving the consecration as a virgin. So, um, wow. In that experience, he was moved to Flint, here to Flint. And so, um, and I knew that I would see him off and on. While I was here, and um, he had said to me at one point after I was a principal in Ann Arbor, he was like, "Well, he said, Teresa, I'm going to need a, I'm going to need a principal. Something happened here." He was asking me, and I was like, "Well, I'm finishing my PhD. I stopped being a principal at the this other school because in Ann Arbor because I I needed to finish my PhD." And so he was like, "But I, we need a principal now," and I said, "I can't do it <laughs> <laughs> now," but I did. I, I mean, I find out, finally wound up, like, that final last six months of completing my PhD, I, um, I, I went ahead and took the Pedestrian here, and uh, as well as finished. So my first six months <laughs> as a principal yeah, were bet. quite challenging, indeed. Indeed. So, but it mostly was because first God had me even have the experience of being a principal, and then he... He led me here, you know, and I had been a union rep for um, where I was and had been vice president of the teachers union. So I'd had some leadership experience, but hmm, this is a horse of a different color. Well, that, <laughs> Being a principal. Of course. So um, could you speak a little bit maybe on uh, um, uh, being a consecrated virgin? Mm -hmm. um, maybe not everyone knows when, mm -hmm. when we say that what that actually means, what that entails. We hear often a lot about the... Uh, vocations uh, like the clergy, the priests, mm -hmm. uh, the religious orders, uh, marriage. We don't mm -hmm. hear a lot about consecrated virginity. So can you tell us about that? <laughs> yes, it's um, ancient. It's an ancient rite in the church before it started, before the um, orders started, of course. And so, you know, people who are our, um, our models are like St. Agnes and St. Cecilia and and Agatha, because, you know, they're all consecrated virgins. What you used to do when the long time ago is, like, you would live with your family and you would just make a consecration to Jesus, and it wasn't very formal, and you just lived for him, and then you got killed. <laughs> oh. oh. 
We hope not to do that to you here. <laughs> you get we'll try murdered. You're lucky today. So, uh, but it, you know, as it developed in the church, it became uh, a call, and sometimes a call within the call because some people who are in the, when you're in an order, you're under uh, um, a mother superior. Um, when you're a consecrated virgin, you're under your bishop. So you're very much like a diocesan priest in that, you know, his, he is your father. And the right comes through him. But you're considered a sacred person. So um, it's not something you get out of because you're married to Jesus in the same way that you would be in a religious order where you just, where you are under this certain form of life. Um, you're called to, you you know, the requirement is that you, in fact, are a virgin and that you um, pray the liturgy of the hour. So the prayers of the church every day, you're lifting up that praise to Jesus every day. And you're a witness to the church of what a bride is. Um, and, of course, you have a, a dedicated devotion to the Blessed Mother because, you know, she's our icon. Um, and you live in the world. Um, there are some consecrated, you can also live as consecrated virgin inside of an order sometimes. You'll, you'll see that, but normally it was meant to live in the world. And the right, uh, six, you know, Canon 604 ex explains it as um, she prays for the church, she prays for married families, she prays for, um, and her, her lifting of herself as a, a bride to Christ. And it's not something that I decide like, it was very much like the experience I had in my prayer life of Jesus extending that invitation to me. And so um, you'll find uh, um, several consecrated virgins around the world. Um, the right was kind of fell into disuse after the mendicant orders started um, because a lot of the consecrated virgins were killed. But then it came back around 1975. John Paul VI revived the right and said that people could receive the consecration. And we had a conference in 1996 to celebrate the revival of the right. We had everybody all over the world who was consecrated versions came together. So it's, but it is a different, it's a different, you have a, you know, it's different than what people understand. And uh, uh, certainly, um, there's a lot of grace, a tremendous amount of grace in my experience. And a lot of the country version I speak to are, you know, God is, they've had a personal invitation, a personal connection of heart, with the sacred heart of Jesus and him calling us, bidding us. And that, then the, and that bridal attraction to him that is out of this world. It's, um, it's deeper than just like this marriage thing. It's, but it's, you can't, I don't, find it easy to put words around it i experience sure. it but i don't <laughs> articulate it all the time you know so yeah totally good that's that's a that's fantastic that's probably the best description i've ever heard of that yeah that's awesome. <laughs> i was impressed that you knew the canon <laughs> <laughs> that's right so uh you're now at St. John Vianney School, principal mm -hmm. there. Uh, what would you say to someone listening if they're considering working at Catholic schools? We were talking um, before you mentioned, uh, Michael, that there's a teacher shortage right now, and uh, so we definitely could use some teachers. And you know, yeah. I've I've been uh, uh, recruited to, to to teach. That's that's where we're at. So <laughs> I mean, yes, I I love it. I love my eighth graders. Oh my uh -huh. gosh, they're a handful. I have them at the end of the day. Yes. So thanks for giving me <laughs> the, the Friday afternoons are just like. <laughs> I, I know I'm not teaching anything. We're just trying to get through. Yeah. <laughs> we commend so, you to the mercy of God. That's right. They're, just, they're ready to go. They're that's ready time to off fly. purgatory. Father. It oh is. Oh, straight up. Well, here's the thing. I think I'm also the, the perfect person to teach uh -huh. them because I remember what I was like yes. then. And, and that's the year I was suspended three times. So my eighth grade year. So I get it. Like, I, I know I have to discipline you. But I understand why you're doing what wigglies. you're doing. I get, I get that. Well, sometimes more than the Wigglies, but <laughs> yeah. Um, so, for someone considering, with, you know, with that uh, promo I just gave to teaching in a Catholic school, <laughs> we gotta rectify it now. What would you uh, say to someone considering working in a Catholic school? Well, I tell them that it's it is a ministry, um, and that. Um, you're teaching the same kind of kids you teach in a public school, except you you have to be a version, person of uh, mission and vision. So it's important to, um, and, you know, we'll try to give you a lot of nickels, but 
we don't have as many nickels. So, you know, yeah. there's a there's a way that if you have a, it, it's important to have a life of faith, um, and that, you know, it'll it'll be rewarding in that you get to see God act in ways and have kids who pray and. Um, you get to challenge their faith and it challenges mm-hmm. your faith. It's something that you, it's a walk with because God's given you these children and giving you a purpose in ministering to them. And so if you, um, and it's not just a bunch of, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, having worked in the public school, I know there was the union and then you had this, you know, I had, state funding and then you had all these bylaws and procedures you had to cover well we have bylaws and procedures and we have expectations you have to have right certification to be teaching in a catholic school but the thing is that whole element of prayer and the whole element of teaching the church is rich in models of faith and the uh, the gift of faith that you can give to children particularly in a catholic school it's not something they can find anywhere else the gift of healing that can happen with relationships and really happen with um, when you're in an environment of faith is really good. And kids really take that in, you know, and they can sense it in you and they'll, they'll ask you, you pray for them, like praying for their parents and the, their expectation of faith is elevated when you're saying, hey, let's, let's circle up around so-and-so. Let's pray for his, that mother who's uh, got cancer or pray for that little brother who's sick or just a, uh, Seeing God act through you and through their their peers um, increases their expectancy of God in their life of faith, and that's not something you can experience in the same way. That, that sense of community, that sense of family of God, that sense of um, seeing miracles often is really there. It's really there, and it's a really exciting thing. Um, and indeed, it's it's a ministry because it's we like I said, no kid is different than any other kid in public school, in a, mm-hmm. public school in a lot of ways. And yet, it's it's so if that's what's on your heart that you want to do a ministry and you want to be able to really affect children, not just because we are whole, we're not just academics, but we're spiritual beings and we're um, as well as emotional beings. And you want to teach the whole child. This is this Catholic school is where you can do that, you know, and live your faith as well, you know. So. Yeah. So I think it's worth it. You uh, you said exactly the same phrase right there mm-hmm. that Sally Bartos just did. Oh, really? The whole child. <laughs> oh, yes. It's about the whole child. Mm-hmm. And I love that phrase, and I, mm-hmm. I think that's true. You know, it's very true. Yeah. There's, there's something deeper that happens at a Catholic school that you can't really get anywhere else. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. and I loved what you had to say about mission, mm-hmm. how Catholic schools are a place of mission. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of people don't think of them that way. Even people who have had who have maybe even grown up in Catholic schools or maybe especially for people who haven't, there's this sense of like, you know, oh, Catholic schools, it must be like holier kids or, <laughs> or yeah. something like that. But it really is a place of mission and there, there really is a great need. So I love that. So this year, SJV has maintained in-person learning all school year. Yep. Why has that been important at SJV? And what's been your response during the COVID-19 pandemic? We had, um, just as a diocese talked about, trying to get the kids in place to place. When you have a trauma going on around the country and around the world, as much as possible, you'd like to keep some normalcy around, um, particularly in uh, the Flint environment, um, where there's been a, a tremendous loss already because of the water crisis, and you have families that are already in trauma, and then now everybody's getting sick. Some people are dying, and you have these children who don't even have access to online. So um, it was extremely important to us to get the kids in front of us. Um, there, we had enough children that were um, whose families were in trauma that we, we certified as a Title I school because of, there was so much going on. It was important for those children to, to have the additional caring adults around them, those teachers, and those that personnel that um, would take the risk to take care of them. And my staff was quite zealous. At first in the summer when we couldn't go to school, we they were going to people's houses daily, wow. delivering things and sitting six feet apart and teaching them. And parents will testify to that. When we were finally able to get in school, we 
had some funding from the state, so we ended up hiring uh, staff, and all they do is clean all day. They mm-hmm. wipe light fixtures, they wipe doorknobs, they wipe railings. They do. We got a special cleaning machine that does not use a mop, but as an extractor, uh, you know, dirt using water. It's a fancy machine, but that was one of the things we had to do to extend, the, you know, to use precautions. We became most Catholic schools, including ourselves, we posted online a um, a restart plan. Father wrote a uh, blurb in the beginning about why it's important for us. It's important because kids need touch. I mean, that's researched all over the world that, you know, they need contact. And uh, not just little kids, big kids, even us as adults. And so it's important to do whatever it takes to try to make that happen. So we used the funding we had to provide the precautions, the personal protection equipment. We got money to get total online if we had to um we got extra staff in each uh, at least from kindergarten to preschool all the way up to uh, fourth grade so that we could give the personal attention to the kids because there was some loss academically so we um did a lot of that a lot more extra praying you know telling kids so, some stuff some stuff we have one of the staff who's especially specializes in grief counseling so we've kind of put her on board so she can, even though she's a teacher, so she can, we can do some intervention. We have a, two counselors um, on board as well who can do, who do remote as well as face-to-face intervention with kids. Um, we did some extra conversations with teachers about how to help students in crisis who don't actually need a professional person involvement, but uh, um, might need some extra emotional support. How to have those conversations? How how to have those conversations with parents, families? Some families just falling apart because they've lost five people in there to COVID. You know, it's, it's a lot of trauma. So, um, so I would argue that you actually have three counselors that you hired a third counselor this summer. Um, mm-hmm. His name is Murphy. <laughs> Can you tell us about Murphy? Yeah, we we decided actually right before the COVID hit that it would be good to get a little four-legged furball in the building <laughs> because, number one, I love dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, I have seen the effects of um, therapy dogs in therapy animals in situations with kids in schools around the country. And so I, after talking with the staff, um, we decided let's get a dog. I talked to um, one of the one of my former teachers' um, wife. She works with um, leader dogs, and she said, "And thank you, Amy, for being such a help, Amy Sims." But she was very um, instructive in helping us figure out how to do this and how the training needs to go. And he's a standard poodle. And he's very, um, you know, when I, I went to Georgia to get him, mostly because I knew that this company where I got him from, they specialized in um, breeding dogs who could be um, therapy dogs. So, yeah, mm-hmm. he's a third. He's the, he's the third leg of the th- therapy convention. He's the biggest hit. Oh, <laughs> you know? no question. No question about it. Uh-huh. Man, he, and he's he's perfect for that, too. So, first of all, he's looks like and is the fluffiest dog I've ever <laughs> met. It's You can't keep your hands off him. So uh-huh. Like kids are constantly just trying to hug him and pet uh-huh. him, and it's uh-huh. perfect for that. Anytime he walks through my classroom while I'm teaching, I'm like, all right, we're done for five minutes. <laughs> go go pet the dog. Yeah, they go pet the dog. The dog <laughs> is the center of attention at all times. But <laughs> yeah. he's so good. I, I remember um, one of my favorite stories with him is, uh, so you bring him to mass with you, yeah. which is fantastic. And so you'd probably had him for just under a month at this point. Uh-huh. And uh, I had uh, just started mass and you came in in the back and Murphy was with you. Uh-huh. And and all of a sudden I see him, boom, take off. And I'm like, <laughs> uh-oh, where's he going to go? I'm, I, I like almost freeze up there. Uh-huh. Like, What's he going to do? He takes off. Makes a sharp left right into the pew that you always sit, sit in, in, and he just sat right down. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. It's routine. Yeah. It all yep. about routine. He's being evangelized. That's really that's true. That's true. He's, he's a great dog. We love having yeah. him there. And, yeah, uh, I love it. It's been, it's been pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. So suppose that someone is listening that is thinking about sending their child to a Catholic school. 
Why should they send their child to a Catholic school, and in particular, St. John Vianney? Well, because we are wonderful. <laughs> Let me expand Agreed. on that. We have great, very extremely caring staff. Um, we have uh, a heart for the mission, I believe, and that we inspire in the children. Um, not only do we have all kinds of help in terms of the whole child, as we discuss, but... Um, we also, that whole element of faith, and the whole element of faith in God, but also faith in the child, faith in the parents as collaborators to support that child, to get that child to their mission and purpose that God has for them on the face of the earth, that, and to impart that to them. Um, it's, it's often that people just think about the academics with Catholic schools, but now we've, we, we all see that um, particularly at St. John Vianney, that the fire is in the gut, you know, <laughs> the fire to love, the passion to give, uh, as well as to learn, to learn to lead and to serve, which is what we talk about as we uh, receive kids into the building. Every child, every child is precious. Every child has a purpose, and we want to um, offer that purpose to the child. Even in the midst of Flint, even in the midst of this, the, the different ups and downs that have happened in the city itself, you know, this child is hope, this child is a gift. And uh, I think it's important for parents to know that even themselves, that, that they have a purpose in the mission and that the child's purpose in the mission will do whatever it takes to not only strengthen them academically, but as citizens and as um, people of good faith, but also as people of faith faith in God, faith in who they can be for God and, and in part in their mission as well. So um, that's that's the core of it. Our, um, our website is um, SJV Kids, you know, St. John Vianney Kids dot org because it's about kids, you know, mm -hmm. and, and increasing those apostles, martyrs and prophets in the church and for the world. And so that's what our vision is. Why it's worth, it's worth bringing them there, bringing out that integrity. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, uh, coming out today. Um, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah. I'll have the uh, the eighth graders later this afternoon. I'm always looking forward to that time with them. <laughs> I'm looking forward to you coming. It's always oh, yeah. good. Yep. Thanks so, so much. Thanks for coming out. Okay. Thanks, you.